Good morning. Are we good? How good are we? Let's see them smiles. I can't. Some of them. Glad you chose to join us this morning. Appreciate that very much. Um, I just I don't want to take a lot of time to reemphasize what Jason said, but really is an important time to be together, to look at the Word, to do something collectively as a church, to promote the community and the unity and those kind of things. I really encourage you to do that. Sure, it was awful nice of Rick Warren to make that video for us this Sunday, wasn't it? Good job tracking him down, Jason, and doing that for us. Appreciate that. Um, we're going to today, uh, in preparation for this 40 Days in the Word, I, I know we've talked about it a lot, and Jason mentioned it last week, that we spent the first few months of the year covering a lot of topics surrounding the Word of God. And today what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to go through and I'm going to summarize from a big picture perspective what we did in those four months. And three, three to four months, however long we were going through that, that those subjects. And really it's going to be from uh, a framework that you would find in a, in a Bible college or a systematic theology. Um, that's really the framework that we used to uh, deliver all that. It doesn't mean you need to be worried that you're going to get some kind of a high school lecture here. That's not my goal. Or that you need to be intimidated by anything that where they use scholarly words. You know, sometimes people throw out these big scholarly biblical words and we get intimidated by it because we don't know what it means. It's just a way to help us uh, provide a framework to learning and understanding the Scripture. And so we're talking about, I'm going to do a summary on the doctrine of Scripture today, and we're also going to look at some of the interpretation of Scripture. Uh, out in the lobby at the Welcome Center, I printed a bunch of copies of something that I gave you early on in the year, a little uh, folded up paper with some basic Bible study type tips, and uh, that will be available again. It'll, it, my message today will line up with that, uh, so you'll want to maybe grab one of those on the way out if you still don't have the one that I gave you uh, early in the year. Let's pray. God, we invite you this morning by the power of your Spirit, Lord, to infiltrate our hearts and our minds and our spirit. God, that you would be the Lord. You would be the King. God, that your wisdom and your revelation and your character would be what overwhelms us today. God, that we would lay aside all of our anxieties, our fears, all the different things, Lord, that are bothering people, Lord, your grace is sufficient for us. And Father, we trust in you and rely on you. And now, God, I pray that your scriptures would go forth in power and do what you send them to do, Lord, and, and transform us and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. So you can, a lot of times uh, in a systematic theology, what that is, is they'll, they'll break down things in understandable framework. And one of the things that we talked about in the very beginning is one of the most valuable things to learn as you're looking at the Scripture to learn is the authority of the Word of God, the authority of Scripture. Now, we can define the authority of Scripture that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Our ultimate authority lies within the Scripture. And of course, there's a whole path we could go down discussing the ins and outs of this. 
Uh, there is obviously parts of Scripture where people are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. They're not meant to instruct us on how to live, but to teach us lessons and those kinds of things. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Jason uh, talked about this Scripture last week, and it's a very important one uh, to know. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we'll be unpacking this Scripture a number of times today with this subject. But the idea is that everything that God has spoken, what He has instructed us through His Word, we are to use it for our instruction, that it ultimately would lead to our development and our maturity. The Word of God is authoritative. So when we ask ourselves questions, what does God think? What does God want? What is the will of God? Where is, where is this all going? All those kind of things. The Word of God is the ultimate authority in all situations. It's not our cultures. It's not our opinions. It's not our thoughts. It's not our feelings. It's not necessarily even, even though I'm teaching out of the Word of God, my teaching is subject to the Word of God. It's, it's to be reproofed by the Word of God. If someone feels like God is telling them something, it's to be reproofed or looked at in light of the Scripture. Does it line up with the authority of Scripture? Scripture is our authority. So everything that we believe should be based in what we see in the Scripture about the character and the nature of God and what He does. We spent some time examining the story in the New Testament at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when Satan comes and deals with Jesus. He's trying to tempt Him, cause Him to falter and fail. And there's a famous passage, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. But He, being Jesus, answered, It is written. It is written. Jesus is combating the temptation and the force of evil that's trying to cause him to fail and stumble with the Word of God. It is written. And so we can take an example from this when we're dealing with situations in life, uh, wrestling through different issues. What do we look for? It is written. What has God said? And then he says these famous words, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting out of the book of Deuteronomy here. He's quoting Scripture to Satan to deal with Satan. And in fact, Satan takes the Scripture and he tries to twist it to deceive Jesus. But Jesus then replies in Scripture. And three times he's tempted by Satan to do things uh, that Jesus refutes with the Scripture. So if the Scripture was authoritative enough for Jesus to use in dealing with Satan, is it authoritative enough for you and I to use? Nod your head, yes. That would be the correct answer. You just passed the first pop quiz. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Also implying that our survival, our nourishment, who we are to be and become, we're drawing uh, from the source of the Word of God in order to be nourished. Very important concept when it comes to the Word of God. So why do we do 40 days in the Word? Why should we study the Scripture? Why should we know what it says? Because we're nourished by what it says, by what it teaches us, and it is authoritative. God's Word is our ultimate standard of truth. We live in a world as it, you know, you, you had a modern age, and now you moved into a postmodern age, and this idea that truth is becoming more and more relative. It's just what I think. It's just my opinion, and therefore it's my truth. 
But in fact, the Word of God is what is true and what we evaluate and decide what truth is. John chapter 17, verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. This is Jesus praying for His disciples. And He's saying, sanctify them. In other words, make them clean. Make them holy by the truth. What does the truth do? We know that there's a famous passage as well. Know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth is a very powerful thing in our reality. But we live in a world that pressures us to decide on our own what the truth is. So how, you know, there's, there's a lot of argument. How can anyone know what is true? How can anyone know what is right? Each person must decide for themselves, and yet there's an inherent sense in mankind of morality. We might disagree on the fringes of some of it, but by and large, man has a sense of morality. Why? He's made in the image of God, and then God gives us His Word to establish what is true and what is right and what is good and how we should live in our lives. So we look to the Word of God for truth. We're just like Jesus in that situation with Satan sometimes. Life throws us curveballs every day trying to strike us out. But where do we go to deal with that, to overcome, to become victorious, to become mature, to become full of life and good things? We go to the Word of God. In fact, we'd have nothing to do today here on a Sunday morning if we did not have the Word of God. We wouldn't know. Paul talks about how can they be saved if they don't hear? How can they hear if someone doesn't preach to them? What are, we, what are we preaching from? We're preaching from the Word of God, the authoritative Word of God. Number one thing, the authority of Scripture is one of the doctrines of Scripture. And so if you were going to go to Bible school, they'd start teaching you that. That would be one of the main things they would teach in systematic theology would be the authority of Scripture. And then that idea, that thought, that reality informs everything else from there, that this is authoritative. I don't get to decide to disobey or disagree or those kinds of things. It is the truth that we lean on. The second thing is the clarity of Scripture. I didn't use these words. I used the words authority when we were teaching this in the spring. But as we do a summary of it, I'm just going to use the terminology that you would normally find with this. The clarity of Scripture. The Scripture was given in such a way that it can be understood and acted upon by ordinary believers. What does it mean, the clarity of Scripture? That it can be understood. You don't have to be a college graduate scholar to understand what the Bible is, says. If I called on one of you right now to just open up your Bible to something in the New Testament and put your finger there and read the verse, could you explain it to me in some reasonable fashion? You probably could for the most part. Because it can be understood. It's not in some complex language. And even though it was much of it was written in ancient days, the principles it teaches still can be understood. You don't have to be a Greek scholar. You don't need to be a Hebrew scholar. You don't necessarily need to know everything about history and archaeology and all those kind of things. The Scripture was written to common people of the day. It was meant to be read and memorized and taught from parents to their children. It was not so complex that only the elite could understand. It's not a mysterious uh, thing. There's a lot of just plain wisdom that we draw from the Word of God. It's called the clarity of Scripture. It's meant to be understood. So each one of us then has the opportunity to read the Word of God with a reasonable understanding and expectation that we can understand it. 
that there's clarity that we can get from the Scripture. It's not always easy. It's certainly not always easy. But it can be understood. Wisdom and teaching are very valuable. Yes, we lean on scholarly perspectives. We read history to see how it correlates with the Scripture. Some of the archaeology and things like that is, has brought fascinating discoveries in terms of the Scripture. All those things are helpful to our journey, but the core message of the Gospel and the Scripture can be understood by everyday people. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation... Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Peter and Paul knew each other. They worked together in some circumstances. They both ended up in Rome, actually, in the end. Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Yes, there are challenges that we face sometimes in the understanding of the Scripture, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. There's a lot of different aspects of this passage we could talk about. There's some good stuff here. But all I want to point out to you today is that, yes, it can be difficult, but there is a twisting that can happen as well. Peter is indicating a moral responsibility of the reader to not twist the scripture to mean something that they decide it should mean. A clear uh, manipulation, if you will of the passage. And we know that the Scripture itself warns of that. Surrounding ourselves with teachers that tell us what our itching ears want to hear. Those kind of things. And sometimes we read a passage and we want to make it mean something that it doesn't really mean. So it's important to consider those things when we're reading the Scripture. It can be understood. It was written to common people in every age that it was written. It's meant to be read. It's meant to be understood. Number three, the necessity of Scripture. The necessity of Scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will, but is not necessary for knowing God exists or for knowing something about God's character and moral laws. There's a thing, um, I just lost the term, but... Uh, there, there, there's the, the whole world, there's, there's evidence in creation that God exists. There's something, there's an eternity in the hearts of men. I mean, this is why we, we've talked about this many times. Most people in the world believe in something more. Why? Because there's something inherent in each one of us that understands that there is more out there than this. But we don't know that much about it until we see that it, when God begins to introduce Himself to the Israelites and He rescues them from Egypt and Moses is on the mountain and it recalls the writing of the Ten Commandments. The first written Scripture says God wrote it with His own finger, those Ten Commandments. So God began to write down the terms of the covenant, the terms of the relationship. He wrote them down so that they could be remembered, so they could be taught, so that they could be passed from generation to generation. He wrote them in stone. It's why we say written in stone. The idea being that it's not going to burn up in a fire, it's not going to disappear. It will stay the same through the ages. And so we see that God begins a pattern there of uh, writing Scripture. It was necessary. It's necessary for us. For whatever reason, by God's design, He's made it necessary that there be this Word that comes and is written and is recorded. And we unpacked a lot of that from the Old Testament. 
Fourthly, the sufficiency of Scripture. I think this is a really important one. Uh, Well, they're all important, of course. Sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God He intended His people to have at each stage of redemptive history. And that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. The idea being that Scripture is sufficient. We don't need additional things, additional books, additional uh, stuff in order to have a relationship with God, to have a full understanding of who God is, to obey God, to know His will, those kind of things. The Scripture does lead us to a relationship with the Holy Spirit, of course. The, The Scripture leads us to teach, to examine, to grow and learn and those kind of things. But the Scripture itself is sufficient then for us to do all of those things. When we go outside the boundaries of Scripture, we're saying that the Scripture is insufficient for me to have a relationship with God. Okay, so it's sufficient for me. It, it, it's enough. It's enough. It's all that I need. We come back to the passage in Second uh, Timothy where he says all Scripture is breathed out by God. If you, <clears throat> do I have that one up there next, Lily? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, that Jason so cleverly pointed out last week. The idea that the Scripture comes and it teaches us, it, these are important concepts, but it doesn't teach us just for the sake of teaching. Why do we learn? So that we can grow, so we can become more, so we can become mature that the man of God may be complete. There's a purpose in teaching and reproofing and correcting and training in righteousness. Why? That there's a destination in place that I become mature, that I become complete, that I'm equipped for every good work. The Scripture is sufficient for me to do that. It's all that I need to become mature. I don't need something else. I don't need something more. The Scripture is my foundation and everything else comes from it, the sufficiency of Scripture. We are not bound to do more than we are taught by the Scripture. Now, all right, well, what relevance does that have in our current reality, J.R.? Well, there's a thing, there's a number of things we can talk about. Uh, The Scripture is sufficient, leads us to the idea, and we talked about this in the spring, of what we call trajectory hermeneutics, hermeneutics interpretation of Scripture. And the idea being that you know, there's certain truths lined out in the Bible. As time goes on, God is introducing Himself and things are adjusting and becoming more mature. Well, tra- trajectory, you understand what trajectory is? Something that's out there. And if you see a theme through Scripture and it gets to a certain point, now it's like, well, that was 2,000 years ago. So it must mean more than that now. There are things like that where we have this tendency to look at patterns in Scripture and then go, Well, up until this point, God was doing this. Therefore, it must be more than that now. That's called trajectory hermeneutics. It's an improper interpretation of Scripture. It's to derive a meaning or a truth to uh, project out over time that if God was doing it that way then, He must be doing it a different way now because of the direction it was headed. And there's examples of things like that uh, where we see uh, we have issues with doctrine today. And when we look back at God's characters, things like, uh, you know, dealing with the issues of sexuality or things like slavery where these kind of things come into play. Uh, was, is, is Scripture sufficient for us 
to deal with those difficult issues? Or do we have to project something further out from them in order to arrive from our truth? And our our understanding and proper teaching would be that, no, Scripture is sufficient. I don't need to establish a truth outside of Scripture in order to know how to live. The other being eisegesis and exegesis. Okay, don't don't freak out, okay? I know some of you are like, oh, I already got through high school. Why are you doing this to me again? Because it's very, very important to understand these things. Don't be intimidated by the words themselves. Think about the meaning of the words. Eisegesis is... Isa in, exa, out. Isa, Jesus is to read into something, something that is not there. It's really fun as a preacher. I will preach something, and every, oftentimes people will, they're wearing a filter, if you will, a filter of their own perspective. And they will read into my message something I did not say. So we, we might have an ex- example here in a little bit as I'm preaching about how that happens but they will hear through the lens of whatever their opinion is and i i I might might say i didn't say that Uh, our friend ray lowe always says don't hear what i'm not saying okay don't hear what i'm not saying i'm not saying i'm not expressing an opinion about something i'm just telling you what it says don't hear what i'm not saying but people hear through their filters and it's pretty interesting how that's Uh, shown up in recent days because they've read into it something I didn't say. And we do that with the Scripture. We read into the Scripture through our own experiences and our own lenses and we give it meaning that's actually not there. Whereas exegesis, we just pull out what it literally says. So when it says, thou shall not lie, I can just look at it as face value and know in a very direct way, I shouldn't lie. I'm not reading any more into it than what it says. It's not the heart of God that I lie. It's not the heart of God that I don't tell the truth. Simple fact. But I'm not reading something into it that it doesn't say. I'm just reading what it says. Eisegesis versus exegesis. You know, that challenges the sufficiency of Scripture. If I'm reading into it more than what it actually says, then I'm adding to it. I'm reading into it something it doesn't say. And that's poor interpretation of Scripture and poor doctrine. All right, which brings us to maybe more what I want to get into today uh, that I think is going to be really important for us. And we've talked about, we've already talked about this this year, but it's important to recap it again, and it's the interpretation of Scripture. The idea that we can read and understand and know what it says. And so we want to talk about some of the guidelines today about how we do that, especially going into 40 days in the Word. We want to be processing these words we're reading, and we want to have some foundation in place so that we can read with a a mindset to understand. Here's one piece of advice I'll give you uh, that uh, I mentioned last time. Well, really it's the three three, uh, most important rules of the interpretation of Scripture. Remember what these are? Lily already gave it away. Read it. You know what number two is? Read it. And you know what number three is? You guys are awake. This is good. But why do we need to say that? Why don't you just say that? If you're just counting on me reading Scripture to you once a week on Sunday morning, you don't have a grasp of what the whole says, what the different stories are, where the different Scriptures are located. You read it. You read it so that you understand, so that you have a grasp, so that if I say something wrong, you'll catch it. Sometimes I'll have the wrong address for a Scripture up here, and there are some of you paying attention to that, and you'll catch that. Why? Because you're familiar with the Scripture. 
You're like, wait a minute, that's not in Romans chapter whatever, blah, blah, blah. You read it. See, too often we count on the idea, we just we want to listen to other voices. No, you tell me, Moses, what God wants. But God wants you to know what He wants. He doesn't want to relate to you through somebody else. He wants to relate to you directly. You read it. You understand it. You process it. So you're familiar with the whole. The other thing I want to throw in there too before we get into the the logistical ones is invite God into your process. Invite God to the process. When you're reading His Word, His Spirit is with us. Jesus talks about Him giving us His Spirit as a teacher, a comforter. And so when we're reading His words, He's right there with us. So we invite Him to be with us as we read the Scripture, as we dissect it and process God, what's your heart in all of this? Am I understanding this correctly? What are you trying to show me here? What do I need to understand? God, lead me. Let, let the Holy Spirit be a part of your process when you're reading the Scripture. Okay. There are four things that we have when we're interpreting the Scripture. Four sources of information, if you will. Number one, the meaning of the individual words and sentences. Not rocket science. What does this mean? Every word we say has an individual meaning. Someone who shall remain nameless used a sentence with me the other day. That is gay, they said. Now, if you were alive in previous generations, gay meant something. It meant happy, right? You guys tracking with me? <laughs> if you say that today, is that what you mean? Most of the time not. Maybe my grandma, but that's it. Okay? The, the point being that individual words mean things. And sometimes the meaning changes based on context and time. You know, if you read the old King James, sometimes you run across these words and you're like, what is that? Words we don't even use anymore. We have the definition of individual words. So if I read something, I read a sentence, I know what each word means, therefore my brain can logically put it together so that the sentence has meaning. Just the, the raw meaning of individual words and sentences. It's just grammar, right? That's what we have when we're interpreting the Bible. Second, we have the place of a statement in its context. And we'll unpack some of this a little bit. Where is this being talked about? Where in the whole scheme of salvation history is this statement being made? What's going on in the story? Who's writing to who? What's the author saying? Who was he writing to? What's going on here? We can draw meaning out of that. One of the key things to begin with is, what was the original author saying to the original reader? We're going to unpack a passage in Romans here in a little bit. What, who was the author? Paul. Who was he writing to? The Romans. Okay, I, in my brain I go, okay, what was going on here? Paul's written a letter to the Romans. What were the circumstances? What was going on? Or in an individual story, we talked about the story where we just mentioned where Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Well, where, where was that? What was going on? He was praying. It's important to know the circumstances and the context in order to know what it actually means. And that leads us to something we joked about early in the year. It helps us avoid fanciful 
allegory. Do you remember that? Okay, we, we see the story of David and Goliath, and David puts on Saul's armor, right? And the armor, it doesn't fit him. He didn't test it. He, didn't, he hadn't been in it before, and he says, this is not going to work. What is the meaning of that? What is the author communicating in that situation? And fanciful allegory would be that, well, of course, Saul's armor represents false doctrine, and we can't wear it because we can't fight the battle, you know. We, we, we read into it what it does not say. Could it be that the author was simply communicating that David was smaller than Saul? That the armor just didn't fit? Now, we can, we can draw uh, metaphorical lessons in those kind of things that would show themselves true in other circumstances, but that passage in and of itself does not teach anything particular except that Saul's armor did not fit David. And if you read the whole story of David and Goliath, the theme you really see is that David's trust was in the Lord. What was the original author communicating about David and Goliath? David trusted in the Lord. It says it right there in the passage. What's this story about? A a small young man who defeats a great giant because he trusted in the Lord. He goes down to the stream and he picks out five smooth stones. And we go, what do those five smooth stones represent? This would be fanciful allegory. Oh, those are the five, if you're a hardcore Calvinist, they're the five tenets of Calvinism, right? Tulip, that's what those represent. Or, no, those are the five, if you're a Jewish Old Testament scholar, you're like, no, 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 those are the five books of the Torah, of course. You want to defeat the giants, you've got to know those things. Or, maybe not, maybe they're the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. That's what those five smooth stones are used for slaying giants. We could draw, uh, you know, some metaphorical things there, but in the story, is that what the five smooth stones are? No. They're five smooth stones. And so sometimes we have to be sure that we're not drawing this fanciful allegory. It's not to say that the Holy Spirit, you know, if you're dealing with something and He takes you there to, to use that to comfort you in some way related to those things possibly, but not that you can draw some sort of theological reality from. We need to avoid fanciful allegory. And we do that by asking ourselves a question. What was the original author trying to tell? What was the story they were telling? What was the truth that they were getting across? Where in salvation history we see, sometimes they're called dispensations, there's different epochs, there's periods of time. The world was different from Adam to Noah. And the world was different from Noah to Abraham. And it was different from Abraham to Moses and Moses to the exile or Moses to Jesus, however you break up the Bible in your mind. And it does matter where those things are. Context is important for our interpretation and how we draw truth out of the Scripture. And here's why you need to read it, because one of the most important things about the interpretation of Scripture is the overall teachings of Scripture. So when we read something in the Scripture, the Scripture is many Uh, human authors and one divine author. There's a consistency throughout. There's a story being told from beginning to end. What is it? We call it the story of redemption or the the salvation um, history, those kinds of things. That's what this whole book, cover to cover, is telling a story through many authors. And God is the author behind it all, inspired 
by the Holy Spirit. So we need to, So when we read one passage in Scripture, uh, I, the Sermon on the Mount is a great place to go. And it starts in Matthew chapter 5, and you're reading through all these different things, and we like to cherry-pick things out of there. And Okay, so in, we, we, uh, there's one passage in there about divorce. And if you, you know, you, you're committing adultery when you remarry and those kind of things, it causes people a lot of tension when it comes to divorce. I can't unpack all that for you today. But right next to it is the passage where it says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. So when I take into consideration the whole of the Scripture, do I think that Jesus really meant literally to gouge my eye out when I sin with, by lusting with my eyes? I don't think so. That doesn't line up with the whole. I want to know the whole of the heart of God. What is Jesus saying here? He's, 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 there's a hyperbole, if you will, drawing attention to the severity of sin and to get rid of whatever causes us to sin. But did he literally mean to gouge your eyes out? We'd all be blind. Okay? We'd all be without our hands or our tongues or our ears because we're utterly sinful, right? So should we derive some mutilation of our bodies out of that passage of Scripture? Because Jesus said to gouge your eye out if, you, if it causes you to sin. No, we, we take into consideration the whole teaching of Scripture to take care of our bodies and those kind of things. Very important for us to keep those things in consideration. Otherwise, we end up in a really narrow focus where we take one passage and it trumps the entire rest of Scripture. See, we all have these things we get passionate about and we, have, we get strong opinions about, and so we'll focus in on one thing, we'll strain out the gnat, and we'll swallow the camel, as Jesus said. Filtering through all these things in order to fit what our itching ears want to hear. A couple other points, and then we'll run a couple of quick exercises on this. Since the Bible is about God, what does the text say about God when we're reading it? If this whole story is about God, what do I learn about God from this? If the focal point of the Bible is Jesus Christ Himself, the Old Testament points to Him, the New Testament flows from Him, how does the text point to Jesus? And a good question to ask yourself when you're reading the Scripture. And the last thing we have sometimes is some information about historical and cultural background. We have to be careful with this because it's not always necessarily accurate, but we can have some understanding. Uh, based on the times and what was going on. And it can't help, at least it doesn't always change or very rarely changes the truth or the reality of a teaching, but it does enhance our understanding of it. Okay, let's do a couple of them. Here's, here's one. Okay, this is your first assignment for a memory verse right here. Okay, go ahead, Lily, what is it? Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. 35. Everybody? Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. Did your Sunday school teacher do that kind of thing with you? I could only my Sunday school teacher only let me use this memory verse two or three times for my memory verse. And John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Well, can I draw much meaning out of that? What What does it mean? Well, let's apply these principles that we've been talking about. The meaning of the individual words and sentences. Two words to understand here. Jesus. Any questions? No, we know who Jesus is. Wept. He cried. But then I start to apply those other principles that come into play. What is the context here? What is going on when Jesus wept? Why is Jesus crying? 
Did he stub his toe? Did somebody hurt his feelings? Why is he weeping? He said, Lazarus has died. And he's watching the people around him mourn and grieve. And he, he asks them to take him to the tomb where Lazarus has been dead for days. And he wept. Wow. Then I think about it more. The overall teaching of Scripture. Maybe I'll bring this into play. I know that in Hebrews it teaches me that Jesus suffered like a human suffers. What does it tell you? Jesus felt things. Is that important to know? Yes. Jesus felt things. He identified with our weakness. We don't know exactly why he was crying, but we know it was at Lazarus' funeral, basically, that he was doing so. And he was recognizing something. Something in him was grieving. See, Jesus identifies with our weaknesses, and Hebrews teaches us that he can sympathize with us, that he sympathizes with us. Why? Because he went through difficult things. Very short and simple scripture, but we can apply the principles of interpretation right here. Do we know anything culturally or context? You probably could study Jewish funerals and things like that and how they mourned, and all of a sudden this might have a little more color to you than just these two words, Jesus wept. Well, if you're like me, all of a sudden you're comforted when you think about it. Because Jesus felt what I felt. Jesus felt and suffered like I suffer. Here's, uh, I'm running out of time, so we're going to skip. Let's go to Romans chapter 13, please, Lily. Here's one that will be interesting today. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Okay, let's, ap let's apply individual grammar here. The meaning of the individual words and sentences. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Oh, wow. Really? Really? Okay, well, let's think about that for a minute. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Well, we look at the individual grammar and sentences here. What is it? What, well, who's the original author? Paul. Who's he writing to? The Romans. Okay, let's, let's get into that cultural context, that cultural background and history. Do you know who the authority was that Paul was telling them to submit to? Nero. One of the most evil, wicked, anti-Christian. He is a villain in Christian history. A villain. He was not a good man. He had banished around this time frame, in these years, he banished the Jews from Rome. Who's Paul writing to? There were Jews that became Christians. Not all of them were Jews. The Jews got banished from Rome. There was a big fire in Rome that Nero supposedly started himself, or is suspected he did, but he blamed the Christians. And then this great persecution broke out against the Christians. Paul, who was killed by Nero, executed by the Roman government is telling them to submit to the governing authority. Wow, that colors the picture of what Paul had to say. Okay, let's take another interpretation principle here. The overall teaching of Scripture. Is there anything else in Scripture we can think of that comes to mind regarding this subject? Yes, Peter. Talking in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake. For whose sake? Okay, individual meaning of words in the sentence. For the Lord's sake. This is why Peter's instructing us in this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every 
How many? Well, unless you disagree, right? Every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. What? That is hard to swallow. What are the meaning of the individual words in the sentences? It's clear. Overall teaching of Scripture, both Peter and Paul, directly in black and white ways, emphasize this reality. Okay, does that mean that I should go to the extent of sinning in order to fulfill this Scripture? Well, I can think of a story in the book of Daniel. You know, this isn't calling us to stupidity, but it is a very strong communication. In the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar makes a big old statue of himself, and he says, everybody needs to worship this. And they go, okay, you've just crossed the line. You're asking me to worship a false god. I can't do this. You're going to have to kill us. I want you to hear something here in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even in their resistance to Nebuchadnezzar, they still submitted to Nebuchadnezzar. And he killed them, or he thought he was going to. And he throws them in the fiery furnace, right? Remember the story from Sunday school? If you haven't read it for a while, it's in the book of Daniel, you should go read it. He throws them in the fiery furnace. God saves them, preserves them. There's a theophany in there, and Nebuchadnezzar looks down, and he sees it. He's like, what in the world is this? And then he, Nebuchadnezzar changes his mind. By the way, in the, the idea that God would establish all authority. What is ne- do you know how God refers to Nebuchadnezzar? An evil, ungodly, wicked king? Calls him his servant in the book of Jeremiah. I will use my servant Nebuchadnezzar. What does he call Cyrus? Also, an evil king. My servant. These guys do my bidding. So even in their expansion of their empires and their abuse of the Jews, God was still behind the scenes operating and using even those evil kingdoms to accomplish His purposes. He is sovereign. It's so important to understand. And so when we see this and we see this text, we say, okay, is this true or not true? Is this Scripture or not Scripture? Is my interpretation accurate or inaccurate? And we take these principles, we apply them, and we come to a decision about them. Lastly and briefly, I'm sorry, I've gone over a little bit today. Thou shall not kill. I went a little simpler for the last one for you. Thou, 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 anyone use that word anymore? Shalt, shalt not kill. What is this? King James Version, right? 1600s language. There's actually a problematic scripture in this translation. And I'll tell you why. The Bible says I shall not kill. So I don't kill deer or elk, you bow hunters. I don't kill an ant. Uh, capital punishment is wrong. What's the problem here? Is that true? Is that right? What, what, how do I evaluate that? How do I know what it says? Well, we start with the individual meaning of the words in the sentences. 
the word that's translated, if you have any more modern translation than the King James, yours probably says murder. Why? Because the Hebrew word that was used in this original language had the connotation with it that you lie in wait and plot against and murder somebody. So those other issues like capital punishment or other things we find our meaning in other places. And I'll let you dig into that. We need to wrap up. Would you stand up this morning? All right, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sufficient for us, that it is is all we need to know your will and the direction that you're leading us in life. Lord, that we have it to fall back on when we don't understand or we're not sure what to do. God, you are awesome. You are awesome. You're inspiring and amazing, Lord. And your example for us is, we're so grateful for it. And God, I pray that your word would be going into each one of us, Lord, as we seek you. Lord, we seek to please you, not ourselves, to please you. You are our commanding officer. And God, we seek to please you. And Father, I pray that you would guide each one of us in that. Lord, help us to all be inspired about your word. What does it say? How do I learn it? God, lead us and guide us each one. In Jesus' name, amen.